Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Thursday, August 10th, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Before we get into our interview, I wanted to mention that SCCM is currently conducting a survey of its podcast listeners. Visit www.sccm.org podcast to take the survey, and you will automatically be entered to win an iPod Nano. Share your thoughts with us so the SCCM podcast can be tailored to your critical care needs. Today I have the privilege of speaking with SCCM President Charles G. Durbin, Jr., MD, FCCM, in his second visit to the iCritical Care podcast. Dr. Durbin is a professor of anesthesiology and surgery, as well as medical director of respiratory care at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Thank you so much, Dr. Durbin, for being with us today. Thanks, Rich. It's great to be here again. We've got uh, some interesting topics to discuss today, and it looks like one of the most recent exciting issues is that the American Board of Internal Medicine is uh, allowing critical care to be a full subspecialty and is, uh, I guess, getting rid of these terms, added qualifications. As we discussed briefly in our previous podcast, this is something that SCCM has been involved with for quite some time, and uh, maybe if you could talk a little bit about uh, the efforts in this area. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I think this is one of the uh, exciting areas, especially for those trained in internal medicine. Uh, basically, what it means is that as new uh, practitioners come into the field, uh, they won't have to both cert- recertify in um, internal medicine as well as uh, critical care medicine, which had been the practice in the past. Um, from a, a political standpoint, certainly um, anesthesia and uh, surgery years ago, uh, probably 10, actually longer than that, almost 20 years ago, uh, went from added qualifications to a subspecialty designation. Uh, In anesthesia, that was a a hard struggle because there were no subspecialty designations in anesthesia. Um, You may recall that my primary training was in in, uh, anesthesia. So medicine is catching up with the rest of us at this point in in the process of designating uh, intensivists as subspecialty trained. For internal medicine, that's very important because there are uh, multiple subspecialties, uh, and this will bring critical care up to the the influence level within uh, the the Board of Internal Medicine, uh, uh, equivalent to those other subspecialties. So that's that's really a a truly great accomplishment. Uh, It occurred really because of the astuteness of the individuals that were involved in the discussions and and the fact that um, it was probably long overdue. As far as uh, actually accomplishing it, really it was the the Board of Internal Medicine that made the the decision to change, but it was our ability to send the right people to the table to help with that process. We were fortunate in that we were asked to provide representation during the discussions, 
and we also uh, worked behind the scenes with our, our fellow individuals from the American College of Chess Physicians, which probably um, uh, struggled with this decision much more than we did. Uh, in any event, it's to, it's to uh, the credit of the individuals involved, and without naming names, we've had a group of dedicated folks who have uh, shown up at all the meetings they were asked to go to, uh, presented a point of view that really was more satisfactory um, and more collegial than uh, uh, we usually uh, uh, talk about in closed sessions. And uh, because they, you know, they had the right on their, they were on the right side. Things went very well for us. The other um, question that always is raised, of course, is why isn't uh, critical care a subspecialty in, or a specialty in its own right, as it is in some European countries? And, that, and we've talked about that here. In fact, on the last call, we talked about having a conjoint board with all uh, individuals sitting down, basically, no matter what their background training was, and taking a common uh, board, either only doing critical care without a primary specialty or uh, at least being examined under the same circumstances, since it would appear that critically ill patients are the focus rather than the specific training uh, that goes into getting us there. From that perspective, I think we're still a fair uh, distance away. I, um, I know from my conversations with the, the surgery and anesthesia boards that they have been sharing questions, a common question set, um, not all questions, but uh, at least a portion of the exam on both both um, uh, surgery and, and anesthesia critical care boards are common now, and, and the board writing individuals share their information. And so at least if you take the, the exam, get the same question, the answer's the same, where it wasn't, in, uh, the correct answer's the same, where it wasn't in, in years past. So that discussion between surgery and anesthesia is going on. Plus, Surgery uh, has agreed to accept any uh, any surgeon who takes an accredited anesthesia critical care fellowship uh, to accept that individual to um, their board exam. So I think, at least from surgery and anesthesia perspective, a common exam, a common experience uh, uh, is likely to occur over the next five to ten years. As far as uh, practicing critical care or taking it right out of medical school, interestingly, we queried our members about things they liked and didn't like about the current education and training system and uh, certification system. And one of the things that really was uh, a surprise to me was that most individuals really wanted to have a primary board other than critical care. The reasons stated were something to fall back on. You can't do critical care your whole life. It's too hard to do it when you're over 50 years of age. Um, and almost without exception, people wanted to have the both boards critical care, and some other specialty so that they could divide their practice and therefore reduce the likelihood of burnout and uh, overload. One of the uh, other controversial areas uh, that doesn't seem to be resolved yet is this issue of emergency medicine and critical care, right? Yeah, and, and I know there are discussions continuing. Actually, they've been going on for as long as I've been around, um, how to get non-primary uh, non board members uh, who have taken critical care fellowships and who, in fact, tra practice in critical care environments, uh, giving them an opportunity to be board certified. Um, the emergency medicine is probably the largest group uh, currently, although neurology, neurosurgery, and neurointensivists are the biggest growing group. Um, they have, in fact, uh, tried, all of those groups have approached the primary boards and asked for opportunities. Um, because there was so much competition when the boards were set up, I think 
that that route really never panned out for these individuals. On the other hand, with a growing recognition of a shortage of critical care providers and more collaborative um, question sharing and training sharing opportunities, I think this question will probably be answered in the near future with some conjoint activity allowing non-primary board members to sit for those exams and receive some kind of uh, certification from their either primary board or, or, or another board. Um, the other uh, uh, group, as I said, the neurointensivist group, uh, actually I practice in a neurointensive care unit, um, and our fellows who come from neurology and don't have boards in medicine have no route for certification yet either. Um, they've, de- they've created a, an academic discipline. They are publishing a journal. Uh, they've set up their own uh, fellowship accreditation process and will probably offer their own board in the next, uh, their own exam in the next uh, couple of years, taking uh, folks who come from either neuro uh, surgery, neurology, interventional radiology, specifically neurointerventional radiology, uh, anesthesia, <laughs> which will create an interesting conflict there. Um, and uh, uh, unless the primary boards find a way to filter these folks through a common exam, that's the route that will undoubtedly occur. Um, and, the, and the groundwork has already been laid for that. Um, neurology has been approached to offer critical care as a subspecialty, but there are so few programs in it that they don't really qualify. And they've done that repeatedly over a number of years. But the number of institutions that now have dedicated neurointensive care units and therefore require special expertise for practitioners in them is is growing rapidly uh, within hospital systems. So the demand is certainly there. One of the uh, things you mentioned before segues nicely into our next topic in terms of the uh, shortage of critical care practitioners around the country. And I was wondering if you could share with us your perspective on the recently uh, released report from the HRSA confirming that there is an intensivist shortage. You may recall about 10 years ago, maybe not quite that long ago, we started um, the Compact Survey, which looked at the demand for critical care services, who was providing them nationally, uh, projecting into the future what the, the demand would be relative to the aging population and the increase in expected critically ill patients. Um, that pa- a paper from the Compact Study was published uh, early 2000s. Uh, maybe late 1980, uh, somewhere around that time. Really, it was done by doing a survey of what patients are in your unit today, um, who's providing care to them, uh, what, are, what are their training, and a survey of about 5,000 ICUs. Um, so it was a major one-day survey, one-day view of what was in ICUs throughout the country. The data was analyzed by hospital size, teaching association, et cetera, et cetera, and basically the outcome was that only about 25% of the care given to critically ill patients nationwide was provided by an intensivist of any training, um, and 75% was provided by others without any training in critical care. Now, it was almost 50% if you talked about large um, academic hospitals in uh, major metropolitan areas, and if you looked at rural hospitals, it was negligible. There was almost no involvement of intensivists and in, intensivists in care. There was no um, difference depending on the patient's uh, severity of illness, although that wasn't specifically looked for in this particular study. Um, 
that uh, translated, when, when we extrapolated that data for the next uh, 25 years, it translated to uh, uh, if we were to provide the same level of care for patients given the output of residents and fellows in training, we would have uh, a, a, a a shortage by the year uh, 2010, I believe, was the number we came up with in that original paper. The interesting thing about the HERSET study is that um, while we were influential in providing data and requesting that the study actually be done, the study itself found that the shortage was going to occur sooner and be more dramatic and also projected that maybe the ideal wasn't to maintain the level of intensivist um, involvement, the numbers and percentage, at the current state of 2000, around 2000. But they actually suggested that given the other reports that are out there about improvement in care when an intensivist involved, is involved in care of the critically ill, that uh, they should project a higher percentage, therefore making the, the shortage sooner and more profound. So while we weren't surprised that they were projecting a shortage, we were. I was surprised that uh, they projected that there is now currently a shortage that we should try to meet a higher standard, and that uh, the depth and duration of the of the um, uh, problem would go on for a lot longer and be much more profound than we had we had originally projected. So I guess they told us what we knew, but they actually couched it in terms that were even more demanding, more compelling. How that report will be used by the federal government is not clear. The political process is, okay, there's a problem. Now a legislative solution needs to be developed. The three critical care societies have collaborated in intimately on this. It's been a 10-year project for us all. And I think it's brought us all together in trying to solve a problem of common interest where we might be somewhat competitive with our educational offerings, our philosophy of life, and our uh, um, you know, membership roles. We're really very intimately working for the same solution here, which is getting enough support to get practitioners uh, trained and out in, in the environment. It seems to me that over these 10 years, we've become closer as organizations. We've shared more, and we've had more uh, uh, positive interactions. And, so that's a side effect of this process that I think is excellent. You know, as someone who was a hospitalist who became an intensivist, it's been fascinating to me. You know, you look in the back of the New England Journal and there'll be 40 hospitalist jobs and two intensivist jobs. And yet, and I remember I heard, heard Derek Angus talk about this, is that it's sort of this silent uh, problem because hospitals don't even realize that they should be looking for intensivists. Does that make any sense? Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree with you. The struggle to figure out where the jobs are and how to apply for a job in, as an intensivist has been very complicated throughout my lifetime. And most um, intensivist models are either based in internal medicine or anesthesia uh, and are, in, are more advertised through contacts and, and person uh, people you know than they are listed as open invitations to apply. Um, I think that's changing because now um, hospitals are using EICUs, electronic uh, monitoring systems, and the need for an in-house response or someone to actually watch the monitor is uh, becoming a huge growth area, uh, especially in the Midwest and uh, uh, Far West. So I think if you look now and you look for uh, intensivist 
uh, you'll see that as the model, working for a hospital as opposed to working for a group. Remember, with our backgrounds in one specific discipline, the term intensivist was always qualified by pulmonary intensivist or anesthesia intensivist or surgical intensivist. Um, now, I think uh, with this on this this uh, new role, this new job description, people are now saying, "Well, that can be anybody, and you don't have to have a primary specialty." The problem still results, though, that you're not going to do that every shift of every day. So you're going to have to have another job, and that means you're going to have to figure out how to work those both practices together in the American model. One of the problems is that it's not really a full job description. So being an intensivist tends to be still a part-time or a half-time job. Right. Hospitals have to think a little bit outside the box, having hospitalist intensivist combined positions, et cetera, right? Correct. And, and that's what's happening. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the hospitalist uh, development of their independent practice, because I think that really is what an intensivist is. It's a hospitalist. Um, and uh, the, two, the two groups really are looking for many of the same things. And, and their growth really is dragging the intensivists along, if you will, uh, from a hospital understanding of the practice. Uh, we're benefiting greatly from hospitalist uh, growth. There was a recent SCCM Council retreat, and uh, if you wanted to use this as an opportunity to share with the listeners some of the potential forward-looking uh, points from that, uh, from that meeting. Yeah, and I can take this uh, at any level. Um, the council meets four times a year, twice at the annual meeting, and then once in the fall and once in the spring. And over the last five or six years, we've become fairly focused in the way we conduct those meetings. And because people are so busy, we've tended to shorten the meeting to essential business, keeping people informed of what's going on throughout the year with emails and mailings, but not actually having as much time together. Uh, one of the one of the problems I perceive as uh, a result of that process is that we spend less face time, which means we have less understanding of people as people. And we had this unique opportunity a year ago to start having a summer retreat. Whether it'll be annual or not, I don't know. Um, but we at least had the second one of them this year under uh, uh, my uh, recommendation. One of the things we have very little time to do is to kind of uh, think about the future, uh, not so much manage the future, but what is our vision, and to sit down and talk to each other about those things. And I, I just simply broke people into groups that didn't make a lot of sense because I wanted people to not have a preconceived um, bias before they started. Um, so I broke people into groups that probably wouldn't interact over this in, in any particularly other uh, in any other function. And I said, one group was, what do you think uh, the SCCM should be doing new or different in education in five to ten years? Uh, where should we be in our uh, advocacy for quality or our programs related to quality? Where should we be regarding uh, business practices? Uh, should we start up a, a company doing something? Uh, where should we be? Where should we be in ten years regarding advocacy? And then an overriding topic, although I did separate a group to specifically consider that, is where would you like to see the SCCMB in the international environment? That's probably the area where we have the most opportunity, but really have the least understanding of what our role might be. And what are what are some of the issues around that? From what I understand, there's sort of an there's an inter, that SCCM itself is international, but there is also an international federation of critical care societies. Yeah, there's the the World Federation um, of Critical Care Societies, 
and we've always been an active participant in that. The SECM has been an active member of the Federation for a long time. Now, being a federation, basically there's no money involved. About every three or four years, they put on a federation meeting, and everyone shows up for that, or a lot of people do. So what does that mean, that because it's a federation, there's no money? I don't, I don't well, know what that they're, means. Well, the members are, feder- are other critical care societies rather than individual members. So SCCM is a member of the World Federation. I think there's something like 80 members of the World Federation. They certainly meet. They decide where to have the meetings. They have program committees that are made up from various organizations. Um, And they put on a very good and very interesting international meeting. You're correct. We are an international society anyway. We have actually over 80 countries represented in our membership. I think 15 or 18 percent of our members are international members at this point. So, in fact, SCCM is international. Why should there any be, be any question about it? Um, the only question is, what do we see our boundaries as? What do we see the value of expanding those boundaries? Uh, there are risks that come with international um, becoming, quote, more international. Um, certainly, I think if we were, we're going to do that in a big way, we'd want to have some um, more than just pro forma international membership on our directors. We certainly invite international speakers because we pick the, the highest ranked speakers in the world, and they are often not from the United States, at our, our meetings. Uh, interestingly, the discussion was pretty, pretty enlightening. Uh, council felt that we should take a conservative view of the international scene and evaluate each opportunity sort of on a case-by-case basis. Uh, one of the things that was suggested is we, we need to stop looking at ourselves as the guru of critical care and that it might be appropriate for us to develop an agenda to seek out organizations, international organizations or countries that have specific things that we'd like to learn from. Uh, but we could certainly, as an institution, learn and uh, benefit from seeing how care is provided in other environments. It's, it's a it's a fascinating and obviously very complex issue where the society wants to expand, but as you said, you need to expand carefully and uh, rather than expanding for expanding's sake, look into areas where it may be of benefit to the listeners uh, or benefit to both parties that may be involved. That's absolutely correct. So the marching orders were, yeah, let's keep evaluating our opportunities. Uh, we're not quite ready to set an agenda. And when you do think about an agenda, beware of pushing the American view and look more for uh, what we can learn as Americans, and which the majority of our members are. And are we really going to uh, attract uh, the international market, if you will? because it provides benefit for both. Um, I wanted to conclude with something that uh, we wanted to talk about last time. Uh, It says on your bio that you live with your wife, 20 horses, six cats, and a dog in rural Virginia. And uh, uh, many of us don't live with 20 horses. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Uh, Sure. Uh, uh, I I met my future wife when I was 15 years old uh, at 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 um, an activity called Boys' Date. Um, and I was selected to represent my school. I was from um, outside Washington, D.C. My wife was at Girl State, and they met in uh, Annapolis, Maryland, and the girls were at the na- at the State House, and the boys were at the Naval Academy. They were segregated. But we had one activity in common. So I met her at the talent show, and I was so fascinated by her 
rural phone number and no street number um, that I started writing her after that event, and we communicated by letters for the summer, and she invited me out for a visit in rural Maryland. Um, I got out there, and she was uh, cleaning up this uh, large brown thing in the field and turned out to be a horse. And, of course, she said, do you ride? What 15-year-old would ever admit to not doing something? And I said, sure, a pony when I was five. Um, So she put me on a horse, and we went riding all day. I couldn't sit down for the next week, Um, but I was firmly uh, convinced that, uh, you know, the rural lifestyle was something I was interested in, and we would see where the, 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 the budding relationship would go to. Well, we, we stuck together, but it was apparent that horses would be a part of our um, uh, relationship should we move to the next level. Uh, we got engaged. Uh, we, uh, I was married my first year of medical school. She still had a year of college to go, so we commuted. But during that time, uh, we have always spent more for housing of horses than we have for housing of ourselves. So one of the deals was when I finished my training, we would go to an environment which would allow her to have horses and uh, enjoy that lifestyle. Charlottesville, Virginia happens to be uh, compatible uh, for both academic practice uh, and um, uh, raising and playing with horses. So over the years, we've accumulated, uh, I've been here now 28 years, so we've accumulated, uh, in fact, our first house, uh, well, I'm still in my first house, but the house I bought had 20 acres with it, and my realtor gave me her retired steeplechase horse. Gave, I should say gave my wife. <laughs> uh, and so the ho- house came with a horse, which meant my first vacation was putting up fences and things to keep the horse uh, happy. As we had children and they got involved in horse activities, my wife is a, in the 4-H, club, 4-H program, and runs a horse club. Uh, there are about 50 kids in it. Uh, I ride a couple of times a year, whether I have to or not. Um, I generally consider it a successful ride if I don't fall. I, I like horse, horseback riding, but I'm not terribly good at it. And I enjoy the other aspects like managing the property, uh, fixing fences, doing the construction work. So we have a nice barn now, and uh, about 15 of those horses actually belong to us. Five are we charge rent for to be boarded. My wife provides all the the supports for that. We use field boarding, which means they stay out in the fields. She runs her horse clubs, and we we have one horse show a year where everybody in the neighborhood's invited in. This area of Virginia is pretty unique. Part of it is being preserved for a a reservoir, which they plan to put in originally in the year 2013, but I found an endangered species on my stream, and they can't build the reservoir. So they're holding the land in trust, expecting that the Jefferson spiny mussel will die out by the year 2050, at which point I think most of my children will be ready to retire. So that, in a nutshell, we have 15 mostly retired pleasure horses and a horse club and about five uh, horses that people are actively training on. I have to correct you. Unfortunately, um, the dog that was listed in there, Uh 20 horses, the cats, and the dog, well, the dog was 18 years old and died this year. Okay. So right now I'm dogless. All right, we'll have to get the website updated. We've Bad been but true. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. We've been speaking today with the president of SCCM, Dr. Charles Durbin, on the podcast, and we look forward to seeing you uh, at the next Congress. Sounds good, Rich. This concludes our podcast, recorded Thursday, August 10th, 2006. Look for future podcasts with prominent members of the critical care community, including keynote speakers from the 36th Critical Care Congress in Orlando, Florida, 
And don't forget our audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498. Thanks again for listening. The Society's new conference, Excellence in Quality and Safety in Critical Care, in Baltimore, Maryland, USA, September 21st through 23rd, 2006, will bring together leading experts to examine patient safety, adverse medical events, and preventable medical errors, as well as identify everyday solutions to incorporate into practice. Using evidence-based studies and proven guidelines, participants will learn how to create a more efficient and safer ICU. In addition, pre-courses in coding and billing practices or medical emergency and rapid response teams will be offered. Register today by calling 1-847-827-6888 or visiting www.sccm.org.